I'm speaking with Lisa Loving, journalist, teacher, and author of Street Journalist, Understand and Report the News in Your Community. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So to start, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book Street Journalist and why it's important for ordinary people to understand and report the news. I have been a journalist my entire life. I've spent my entire career in grassroots journalism, community journalism. In fact, I spent decades at KBU, and I'm not affiliated with the radio station now, but I've trained a couple of hundred people there in um, the tools of journalism, and such incredible people, people many of whom went on to long careers and um, incredibly impactful journalism in their own right. So I feel that um, one of the most important things that we could be doing in the world right now is trying to figure out what is the next chapter in journalism and news media in general. I'll tell you right now, Suzanne, we don't even know where we're going to be getting news 10 years from now. We really don't. So um, I had a lot of knowledge in my head. I worked for many years also with the Scanner Group newspapers, which is uh, Oregon and Seattle uh, African-American family-owned newspaper chain. And I, it just... One day, I just thought, this is it. There's got to be someone who steps up and puts this information um, into a book format. And literally, the whole thing came right out of my head in one clump, this whole book, which is really, I mean, I make a case for journalistic ethics uh, because they're crucial. But also, this book, what I love about it is it's just, it's just a simple guide to the basics of journalism. I mean, you do not need a master's degree, y'all. You don't need a master's degree. You do not need to be a rocket science to do this work. And the more I watch, um, I spent some time with my mom down in California, um, and she binge watches MSNBC, right? And, you know, I, uh, it, 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 it's propaganda. And the closer we get to the 2020 elections, I don't care if you're on the left or on the right, you should have your fingers on the pulse of what's real information. And that's my personal goal, empowering everyday people with information. We, you know, Suzanne, we spent so many years organizing our communities around the politics. And I think now it's time to stop and organize our communities around information. And that's really the gist. You know, I think it's hard for people to discern what is true or fake, right? We, we, there's a lot of conversations about fake news. And certainly in the internet, we have a lot of opinion-based content, which is different from journalism. Could you talk about what the difference is or, or what in your book you're training people to be able to both recognize and do that that you would say is based in journalism and more truth-based information? <laughs> um, that is, I think, probably the single most important thing about what I'm trying to do right now, personally. And yet it sounds really grandiose, you know, what's true and what's false. What's true isn't the same for everyone, Right. I mean, we can all say gravity, you know, what goes up must come down. That's pretty true. But a lot of other times, uh, what's true changes over time, right? And even how we judge what is truth versus what is not truth, it's not uniform across humankind. And um, I think these are really important things to look at and pick up and look in detail. There's no simple answer to that. 
Um, you know, it's interesting about the whole concept of fake news and how um, president, the president of the United States of America basically has made a lot of political hay around the concept of fake news. Fake news has always been there. Propaganda is just one form of it. In my book, there's a whole chapter about fake news and what I call brain farts, which are basically um, the tricks our own brains play on us when we're trying to make important decisions. Heuristics are a research focus within, um, within psychology, looking at how we think about things and how we make decisions. So a lot of times we're, we're trying to figure out, I'm, I'm watching MSNBC with my mother. By the way, I'm also trying not to throw any F-bombs right now, just for everyone to be crystal clear what's going on in my mind, because I kind of want to cuss a little bit. I'm watching MSNBC with my mother, and, um, you know, one of their hosts is Brian Williams. He, he, what is his show? The 11th Hour with Brian Williams. <laughs> and he, this is a guy who pretended to be a war hero. And he was sort of busted about 10 years ago for pretending like he saved. So I, I don't remember what the story was, but he's kind of a discredited guy, but he's running an entire show and he is liberal. So theoretically, you know, if you're a liberal person, you, you sort of want to support liberal causes or something. And yet that's not the whole story either. So in this current climate, when you're just watching the TV news and trying to figure out what's real, the farther the news story gets away from your everyday life, the more difficult it is to tell if people are lying or not. That was, you know, one of the first, uh, what is it, the first rule of journalism. The closer you are to a story, the more likely you are to find the problems with that story. So um, as we're looking at the current political climate, and again, the, the lead up to the 2020 presidential elections, where all of our television, almost all of our television news is telling us that there's only two political parties, that there's two sides or whatever, we know there's tons of political parties in this country. There's way more than two sides. If you want to figure out what's quote unquote true or more, you know, maybe it's easier to figure out what's accurate, which it's not necessarily the same thing. You're going to have to actually strap on some protective headgear because it's not always that simple. Sometimes it's our heads, our own heads that are, that are supplying the fake news. You know, um, you know, the universe rearranges itself to support my beliefs. What is that confirmation bias, which is a heuristic right? This is the brain fart. But I think the more we study this, this field of heuristics, if you want to be a journalist, if you want to be an information factory, the more you study how people make decisions and how people take in information, the easier it's going to be for you, the easier it's going to be for you to figure out how to provide um, information or informational media content that's actually useful in people's lives. There's so many ways to slice that. We could do an entire podcast just about what is truth, Suzanne. Mm -hmm. Let's do a podcast sure. just on what is truth. <laughs> but anyway, I know that was a long, uh, a high Yeah, well, I'm interested in this idea of confirmation bias because I think what we're seeing with media that is advertising-based and also corporate-controlled, we see that people are served up the information that already confirms their own preconceptions and beliefs. That's the idea of confirmation bias. And of course, in the internet age, that has kind of um, been built into um, the code, so to speak, right? So it's we built into the profit margin, if you want to be super specific about it. Yeah, can you it's talk a little bit about that? It's all about the money. You know, I was talking with some people today about a, a national alternative news broadcast. And one of the people I was talking to um, 
talked about how you know well if you're if you're ta- if you're trying to serve information to the Pacifica broadcast network, you're going to have to give them different information than the people that you would give to a more general um, listenership of news information. And that comment started a little argument. But what's really interesting and remarkable about that is that Pacifica is uh, a nonprofit news, I mean, entity or news and information entity that was created to empower people on the grassroots level with information, as opposed to, let's just take, I don't know, as an example, Facebook or MSNBC, which were created to, to, to um, make a profit for somebody. I mean, one place you can start is you can figure out what is the goal of this entity. Sure, I mean, you know, um, c- community and public radio and, met- and media stations have to do fundraising, but that's different then the entire purpose of it is to make money. And honestly, when you look at, I want to say this too, talking about what is truth, what motivates media outlets, how do we take a machete and cut through the BS? You, I, I, this book that was recently written by Ronan Farrell about the Henry Weinstein scandal, it's called, um, what is this book called again? I'm trying to remember the name. Anyway. This book is remarkable because the real, it's not, it's about the Harvey Weinstein scandal, but it's really about how NBC, the network, screwed up their coverage of it and how the higher ups at NBC were manipulated by the money from the Weinstein machine. And I really want to strongly encourage anyone who's interested in modern media to read that book. It's called Catch and Kill. Catch and Kill, the the phrase means when the, 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 the inquirer purchased the rights to a story um, that was uh, about how a sex, a sex worker had a settlement from the president of the United States of America to cover up their affair, their extramarital affair. Um, the Inquirer bought that story so that they could kill it. So they caught the story and killed it. And that's kind of basically what NBC tried to do in the long term with the Weinstein story. So as we're trying to figure out what's real and what's not, the one thing you can do is look at the, the, the media outlet that you're, that you're taking in right now and figure out what their, what their, what their goal is, what their mission is. And um, when the bigger it gets, the worse it gets. I mean, when it comes to getting information that can actually help you live your life today. I think that another thing that's happening in the bigger picture when you look at media innovation and these, you know, uh, I'm going to say shrinking numbers of actual paid journalists on the street. That is a major issue right now. There's there's uh, so many fewer media outlets nationwide than there used to be that people cannot get basic information about what's going on in their communities. And I want to say this, um, when it comes to what is truth and what is fake news, I just want to talk about what kind of information do we need? Right. As opposed to, you know, what did the president say or not say today? It's, it's huge. The guys, he, we're talking about all of these issues right now within the framework of, I'm just going to say it, an emerging dictatorship. We've got an emerging dictatorship in the United States right now. This is the, the, the high burner underneath all these other issues that we're talking about. It makes it difficult for us even to part these things, to parse these questions, because we don't have any idea what Donald J. Trump is going to do. We know he's probably already cheating on the election. He cheated on the last election. And our, meanwhile, you know, our main media that most people listen to aren't really covering that. And Facebook, right? 
Facebook, which is the information platform, it's, you know, the gigantic information platform, which has all but destroyed media, I'm going to say news media in the United States and increasingly in other parts of the world, Facebook actually makes more money from people gaming their ad system. So Facebook actually is not, it's not really an informational platform. It's a gigantic shopper. It's a gigantic shopping vortex that feeds people buttons to buy things now. And I mean, yeah, I'm going to be talking about this for the rest (laughs) of my life, but I'm wrapping this comment up right now. These are crucial times in our culture and around the world. So one thing that's interesting about Facebook and, you know, what you were talking about with MSN um, is that they are, they are private for profit uh, or corporately owned, supposedly uh, information outlets, but, but not really. Do street journalists or do citizen journalists have an advantage given that they are not by and large paid to deliver news? I know I'm taking a deep breath. No, no, no. The only thing that you can say is that news actually percolates up from the grassroots. It doesn't rain down from the ivory tower. We often think as individual human beings that news is just something we consume, like, you know, whatever, like cheese whiz on a cracker. But news is actually something that we move. It's something that we create. So street journalist is the name of my book. Citizen journalist is not a term I personally use, although it's used in a few other countries. A few other countries that even talk about this are freaking England and Pakistan, okay? There's hardly any countries where this concept of of, of, gra- of empowering everyday people and finding new avenues to train people in the tools of journalism besides graduate school, right? There's few pl- places where people are talking about that, even though it's an ancient thing. So one thing that we can say is everyday people who, and I mean, I think everyone should be paid. I mean, we, we talk about how do we, how do we leverage the money to pay grassroots reporters is a big ass deal. And I think I can say that on the radio, right? So I don't think that anyone who's unpaid has an advantage in the news arena, just as a, across the board. Part of the issue that um, independent grassroots media has is in figuring out how to liberate the money from the top, right? Because that's where it is. And there's plenty of people, there's plenty of everyday people who don't have a lot of money that pay money for entertainment and activities, right? There's a lot of people that pay a lot of money to be on, to pay, to play games online. The, I mean, what, what, one of the things that we have to do is convince each other, convince all of us that it's worth investing in information. And we used to have subscriptions to our daily newspaper, you know? You didn't have to be rich to have a subscription to the daily newspaper. So um, when it comes to this issue of who's paid and who's unpaid, that's one of the biggest issues around. Uh, because especially people who went through graduate school, people who went to journalism school, virtually all the people that have graduated in the past 10 or 15 years have debt. So if you are in journalism school now, you're going to get a journalism degree, you think you're going to get a fancy job, there's, there are not a lot of chances that that's true, right? Actually, in fact. In fact, I see this debated all the time. Um, 
but the real, I think that the real advantage, the most important thing is something we haven't even talked about yet, and that word is innovation. The most important thing to know about newsrooms, oh my God, I almost tossed another F-bomb, thank you God. Anyway, the most important thing to know about newsrooms is that none of the major innovations in news gathering or dissemination have been invented in a newsroom. None. None of them. What what innovations Facebook, are you talking about? Facebook, Twitter, digital, social media, all these things. None of them were invented in a newsroom. We need to spread the tools of journalism out to more people because we need more innovation. We need to weave every brain we've got that we can possibly leverage into how we're going to keep ourselves educated and informed in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the most important, if that sounds like such a daunting thing, you know, from my years in working in the KBU newsroom, which isn't even very many years, the most remarkable thing that the KBU um, evening news does is it brings activists on the air to talk about their work. They talk about the issues and then they talk about how people can connect with them. Now, that right there is something that doesn't happen hardly anywhere else. So when you see there's tons of studies and research now by the Pew Center, P-E-W, the Pew Center, or, you know, all these different other think tanks about the impact of a lack of journalism has on the local community, it actually makes the cost of everything go up. It screws up a lot of, of, of um, institutions because no one knows they exist or what they're doing. So uh, the real benefit of street journalism is bringing is just bringing more people into journalism and ensuring that some kind of innovation will happen. So can you talk a little bit about how you got into journalism? You you said you've been a journalism for uh, most of your life or all of your life you've been a journalist. Why are you so passionate about journalism? Well, I have to say that when I was in the fourth grade, I had a teacher that just came out of the um, Peace Corps. The first time I ever heard anyone talk about journalism was when I was in fourth grade, and it was Watergate. They were the last, it's not the last time the president was impeached. Nixon wasn't even impeached because he quit before he could be. But um, this teacher just came out of the Peace Corps, and he started ranting at our class. How old are you when you're in fourth grade? Are you 10 years old? 9, 10, 11 years old? Yeah, something like that. He was just ranting about how few people knew what Watergate was, but it actually went to the core of our lives in in our country. And it just, he got my attention, you know, journalism. He got my attention. And then, honestly, freaking um, Superman comics. And then I started looking at Superman comics. It was like, because I was 10, right? Um, Lois Lane, who never impressed me. And you never saw what she was working on either. And you never saw, anyway, but I was like, you know what? I think I want to be that person. So literally, passionate teacher when I was a child that actually planted these seeds in my mind, which is my way of looking out in this world and saying, if you're listening to my voice right now, your passion could actually impact someone. And now that's kind of what I do. I take that same passion for it because I just always thought the world should be a better place, even when I was a kid. And I can't say why. I really don't know why. But then um, I always thought the world should be a better place. I don't know why I always keyed in on injustice, even as a child. 
So when I was in high school and I was a freshman in high school, my English teacher invited me to be on the school newspaper, which is the first time he'd ever done that. Invited, There had never been a freshman on the school newspaper. Mission San Jose High School in Fremont, California. And I just got to go back a few weeks ago and visit the um, school newspaper staff. I'm not, oh gosh, I'm going to, my eyes are tearing up. Stop. These were amazing teenagers in this class. My high school uh, uh, newspaper is incredible. And it was incredible then, and it's incredible now. And um, I, I feel that I went from loving words and loving issues and the passion of trying to motivate people. Um, I feel like I went there to this concept of, of just wanting to be, you know, uh, someone who made justice happen. And here's just a weird aside. You know, I don't know if you're into Tarot. Right. I, I do too much to row, but I can't say that I always understand what it's about. But my card is the queen of swords. That's who I am. And my biggest failing is I'm convinced that the right piece of information will solve every problem. I think all of these have to do with how I became who I am today. I still make that mistake of thinking that the right inf- piece of information is going to solve every problem. And that's not true either. Right. But, um, yeah, I've always loved words. I've always um, thought that... Uh, information. I love gathering information. And I feel passionately about people and justice. Do you think that there is a connection between a good flow of information and different perspectives and um, movements for social justice? Yes. And there's a number of different ways to look at that. Um, And this is a fascinating thing that you just brought up. Traditionally in journalism, there was this concept of beats, beats, Um, people who were journalists who had uh, an informational specialty. um, It used to be science writers. Those were some of my favorite people. I mean, almost every newspaper has asked their science writers, which just gets me right now. But when it comes to movements, so many of our movements, our social movements today are actually kind of technical and database right? You've got climate change. That's a science movement. You've got Black Lives Matter and, um, and uh, police accountability. Those are data-driven movements, right? People are collecting the information so that they can make a change. And um, this is important because the wider community of human beings that live in this country, they don't have all the time to be um, experts in a lot of these um, areas. And one place recently where I saw this really in a big way impact people's lives was in what the hell is the federal government doing with vape pens, right? And how, what lousy, lousy media coverage I personally saw of that. Um, You know, we live in Oregon. This is a place where people have debated the legalization of cannabis and cannabis products for decades, right? We have more knowledge about that here than they do in, say, I'm going to say Waukegan, you know, someplace in the Midwest, right? But when I was reading all these articles about vape pens and the federal government and people are dying and it looks like young men are dying more than everybody else and something vague about vitamin E oil and then, you know, just all this extraneous information. In the Washington Post, the New York Times, the LA Times, everywhere, right? CNN, wherever. And no one actually, in the end of the day, it turned out, that these reporters that I was reading, even in the Willamette Week, didn't even understand what the words were that they were using. 
When you, 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 if you were a person who had a health problem, or even if you're a person who's totally healthy, that was choosing to use high quality um, vape products from your local um, cannabisatorium, you had no problem, right? But the way it was reported, every cannabis um, cartridge making company into the same um, into the same muddle. It was like there was no discrimination, no no discernment between there was not even any informational article that I ever read about how um, cannabis cartridges are even made, which would have been interesting. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it turned out it was these cartridges that were empty that were pre-labeled that people were ordering from China, right? And then filling them up with whatever. That was what was killing people. Even now, I don't think that story has been well covered, but it's a classic consumer reporting story. And who's supposed to even be uh, regulating that? Right. So, I mean, we can talk about movements. And in the past, we've said to ourselves, you know, when I went to journalism school, I got my first job. Um, that was back in the 80s. And uh, one of the most important uh, controversial things that a journalist did was a woman who was a female reporter for some community newspaper. And she marched in a feminist um, abortion rights rally and she was fired. Right. Um, often, I'm just going to put this out, women and people of color often scapegoated at, at media outlets for stuff like that in the past. Just really unconscionable. But, it's, but I have to say, uh, we as journalists are all part of our communities. We're not robots. And we're not, you know, brand ambassadors for somebody's media thing. So when you have reporters that are coming from communities that know more about what's going on there, it actually strengthens the media outlet. So as we were talking, as you raised the question, what does it mean, you know, to reach out to movements or people in activist communities to do the reporting? I mean, I think that if we don't figure out a way to bring in a hell of a lot more different kinds of people into journalism, we're not going to be able to get the information we need um, to be able not to be killed by a freaking vape pen or whatever is the next vape pen thing. So we, we really, when it comes to diversity, when it comes to diversifying, who's contributing to the information pot? We have to be less paranoid about who's in a movement and more um, aware of fairness and accuracy and reporting, because those are our standards. And you can do it even if you believe in civil rights. You can figure out fairness and accuracy. I have been speaking today to Lisa Loving, who is a grassroots journalist, teacher, and author of the recently published book, Street Journalists, Understand and Report the News in Your Community. Thanks for having me. I am um, expanding the journalism book into trainings, and I'm holding training workshops out in communities. I've already done it all over the West Coast around how to write your rant. How to write your rant is not included in the book. This is just something I'm doing for free because I feel so strongly that people in our grassroots communities need to learn the basic four steps for how to create a reasonable argument. Um, I've traveled that one around a lot, and I also have a workshop in seven ways to use your cell phone in journalism and three ways you should never, ever use it. But um, hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have some online trainings and video trainings. But, yeah, my website is street-journalist.com, and you can get my book from Microcosm Publishing. Microcosm, Microcosm is fantastic because they have an entire um, sales and distribution model that rejects Amazon.com. So I strongly want to encourage you to look that one up. And um, hit me up. I'm on, I'm on Facebook. Look for me. Lisa Loving. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. This has been Suzanne Legrand for 
disobedient femmes. Get up, get up. Yeah.